This is the Diaspora Dialogues podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of DD. DD helps emerging writers turn their craft into a career. We run a series of programs, including professional development seminars and public talks and conversations across the country. We record all of those in order to bring to you the greatest thinking and writing and conversations taking place in Canada. In this episode, which we recorded in Winnipeg, Manitoba, I sat down with Sheena Kamel, whose first two novels both hit the bestseller list and are set in East Side downtown Vancouver, grappling with some of the dirtiest and difficult issues in Canada that we so rarely talk about, never mind find in our fiction. Hello, my name is Helen Walsh, and I'm delighted to be in conversation this afternoon with Sheena Kamel, who is the best-selling author of two novels. The first one, The Lost Ones, which was published in 2017. And the second one, It All Falls Down, which was just published in August of this year. Welcome, Sheena. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I was delighted when I came across your work. Nora Watts, the main protagonist of these novels, is a singularly unique character. She jumps immediately off the page. In some ways, her darkness, her glaze at the camera, her inability to ignore her reminds one of Lisbeth Salander from the, from the Stieg Larsson's novels. But Nora is our Canadian own, and she is a completely unique character. So I'm going to ask as we start Sheena to do a reading from um, her latest novel to give us a sense of that character before we get into conversation. Okay, well, it's my pleasure. Um, and, uh, and It All Falls Down is about Nora's search for the truth about her father's death. And at the beginning of the book, a veteran from her father's past comes into her life suddenly and casts doubt on the manner of his death. So I'm going to start near the beginning, as one does. I almost drowned last year. I don't remember a lot about it, only that I must have blacked out at some point. Any free diver or scuba enthusiast will tell you that in the final stage of nitrogen narcosis, latent hypoxia hits the brain. It can cause neurological impairment. Reasoning and judgment are often affected, at least in the moment. But it can also feel pleasant, this lack of oxygen. Warm, safe even. It can make you delusional. I wonder if I'm experiencing a more long-term fallout from my near drowning, because I used to be able to tell when people were lying almost definitively. But now I'm not so sure. After the events of last year when my daughter went missing, the girl I'd given away without a second thought, I've looked at people differently. Maybe it's my sluggish maternal instincts kicking in, muddling my senses. Or maybe I've lost my mojo. Because when the veteran said he doesn't know what he's doing here, I believed him. I believe we do things that don't make sense even to ourselves. It's also possible that I'm falling into my own hallucinations. I'm so confused that I say nothing at all in return. The veteran looks as unsettled as I feel. I stare at him hard until he walks away toward the ocean and disappears into the dense night. My thoughts are a jumble until one of them shakes loose. It isn't just a surprise of someone coming to find me after all these years. It goes deeper than that and has to do with the things about my father that I didn't know. That there was trouble in Lebanon with my father. My father had trouble in Lebanon, and then some years later, 
he blew his brains out. See what I mean? So Nora is a uh, unusual protagonist in Canadian literature. She's a biracial PI living uh, surreptitiously in the basement with her dog of the building in which she works that her um, that her uh, landlords don't quite know. She's as comfortable in the vomit and needle-strewn streets of the downtown east side. She is completely uh, unblinking at looking at issues uh, within the Vancouver society, but the underbelly of Canadian society, which is everything from racism to poverty to homelessness to murdered and missing Indigenous women, to police corruption, to, you know, a whole range of uh, things that we don't normally look at so straight on in uh, Canadian literature. And so where did Nora come from? Did she, did she launch fully formed into your brain? How did she creep up on you? Where did this character originate? Yeah, I mean, she was almost uh, fully formed when she came into my head. I was in Toronto. I was working as a researcher for a TV series and all of a sudden I had this idea for a novel and it came to me in, um, in a log line form, which is, um, it, it's the way that film and TV people pitch. The, the, log, the you know, log line was, a woman discovers that the child she'd given up for adoption many years ago has gone missing and now she's got to delve into her, the dark events of her own past in order to figure out just what happened to this missing girl a child that she's not sure she wanted to exist in the first place. You know, it just, it kind of came to me that way. And it was, it was really compelling, this idea. And then I, later on, well, not that much later, it was pretty quickly, actually, I figured out that she was a musician and a, a blues singer. And that was something that allowed me to find her heart and her soul and to, to bring her to life. And so it's through, it's through that, that I was able to kind of create a story around somebody who was a struggling artist. And it just kind of came to life really quickly. Blues plays itself all the way through. I mean, it's also, it's the musicality of how you write, but then, but then very manifest. She is a blues singer. There are other singers, particularly in the second book. Do you listen to the blues while you write? I, I did. I don't know a lot about music personally. And I don't know why I decided to make a character who is <laughs> a, mu- a musician and a singer, but it just, it made sense. And so I've actually learned about the blues and about music in general through writing this character. Um, just something about it really fit. And so now me as a writer, I had to raise myself to the level to, to even deserve a character like that in terms of my own musical knowledge. And, and I, had to, I had to figure that part out for her in order to be able to write her effectively, but it is a huge part of it. And I, I don't really listen to, to uh, the blues as I write, but I do listen to it to get into the writing space. So a trigger for bringing forth her voice into your head? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good word for it. it um, the blues is a trigger for me. And when you started writing the novel, because as you said that you were working in TV and film as a researcher and as a writer, and then you started to write this novel. Did you mean it? We were talking a little bit earlier today about the uh, delimitations about genre in Canadian literature and how those are beginning to open up or that we need to push them to open up a little bit more. When you started writing this story, did you purposely write it as something that would then be called a crime novel or you started writing it and it came about? Yeah, no, I actually... 
this was this book was the first time I, I'd even considered writing a novel in general. It just it came out that way in terms of genre limitations. I sort of have to fight even with myself about it because I I don't I am a crime writer now, but I didn't start out as a crime writer intending to necessarily write crime fiction and stick with that. Although I I do love it and and I love the sense of plot that comes with crime. Um, I love the sense of um, just pacing that it that it offers. I love the way that crime novels can look at society differently, and and like you said, dead on. You know, be very realistic about the kind of society that you're that we're living in, and to explore social issues. So yeah, so I never really intended to write a crime novel, but it it actually became the perfect fit for me. Well, and you have had such success with it. You are. Um, the one thing about a crime novel series is that you often have a discipline of having to produce a book every year. So you had one last year, you have one this year. The third one is coming out next year. Yes. Next year. You are off to Icelandic Noir Conference this I'm week. I'm so excited. Yes, I'm going to Iceland to, um, to participate in their Noir Festival. And it's a really interesting kind of case study because Iceland they, they really embrace the Nordic noir and they, they really embrace their crime fiction community and their crime writers and they elevate it to it, their national literature. You know, there's a panel moderated by the First Lady of Iceland. The Prime Minister of Iceland is going to be there as well. And she's, I think she spearheads a crime fiction fan club. So it's really interesting to see the difference between how Canada treats the crime fiction and how somewhere like Iceland would treat it, which is just like, just a general other form of fiction that is deserving of attention. Well, and that's the way the UK treats it as well. I was, I was reminded of that when I was in Edinburgh for the book festival in August, which I, that I do every year. And, the, and the, the first minister of Scotland was interviewing Val McDermott, who is a crime writer. And it is just a, as it should be. It is a, 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 you know, a story well told is uh, first among equals. And, and that's what I was thinking about when you and I were talking about this kind of genre uh, label and, and how useful it is or not. So with, um, with Nora, let's get back a little bit deeper onto Nora. She also has a very complicated set of fa- familial relationships. There is the dead father. There is the missing... I'm going to be very careful here not to give any spoiler alerts away because I would encourage you to read both the books. I shot through them uh, I stayed up all night reading both of the books, which is a great testament to your writing. She also has a, so she has a missing mother. She has a sister with whom she has a fraught relationship, which would be a a nice way to put it. And one of the things that you, uh, that you evoke a lot without, without trying to over-explain it, but you really show is the, the intergenerational uh, trauma and what passes from one generation to another generation. And I'm curious as to your thoughts when you were writing that, both in terms of the familiar relationship, but then also what is visited from uh, generation to generation. Right, yeah. I mean, family is everything. And lack of family is equally as important if that's what you're, what you, what you're going through. It's, it's the connections that, that take you through the world. And, um, and if your inherited connections are not that strong, then what do you do? And so for Nora, I always knew that she was going to be an outsider. I always knew that she was never going to have a, a community that she felt that she could go to to help her. Um, and it, because in the first book, her daughter, who she'd given up for adoption, went missing and she starts to investigate. 
the only reason that she would do that is if she felt that she had no support and nobody else was going to do it for her. So she had to feel like she was alone. And that's just a, that's a, a you know, a common trope in, in writing mysteries and thrillers anyways. You have that loner, the lone wolf character that will go and, and do those things. But for Nora, I didn't want her to just be a loner. I wanted to give real reasons for it and reasons that were rooted in Canadian society and, and what, what makes up our country. And so there's, I guess maybe it's my political science background and, and my background of, um, I was a youth activist way back when I was a teenager and I saw different kinds of family structures. I was exposed to a lot of darkness in that, in that way when I, back when I was a, a kid. And so I guess I felt it very deeply. I processed a lot of those things very deeply. And I wanted to show how trauma does pass through generations. And you had David Alexander on, you know, before, and he, and he talks a lot about intergenerational trauma. And I think it's important that we all sort of look at, at, at family and mental health and, and what those relationships kind of do to our own mental health. So that, that's where she comes from. That's, that's how, what I use to, to create her. I'm also a fan of um, the, the Canadian crime writer, mystery writer, uh, Louise Penny. And she has created a, uh, a fictional world in Three Pines, which although their murder takes place in Three Pines, there's almost a nostalgia for it being the perfect community of love and camaraderie by which one can keep the evil forces at bay. In your books, the downtown east side doesn't quite provide. It's not so <laughs> idyllic, is it? <laughs> it isn't. Um, there is no out in these books that allows, but I'm going to say a big but, there's no obvious idealistic setting that allows you to believe everything will be okay in the end, except for the relationships between her chosen family, which she would decry. So she would, in the books, often both recognizes and uh, refuses to acknowledge the closeness of the people who care about her because she doesn't feel that she's worthy of it. And yet that is the hope, the connection she has. Not that it's hopeless, I mean, by any stretch, but people love her and care about her and hold her in place in these books, even if she can't always bring that in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her self-esteem and her level of self worth it's not very high she is she is a tough character she's a very strong character but there's a deep deep vulnerability to her and she's faced a lot of rejection in her life and so yeah so she she doesn't know how to accept love and i think there are a lot of us out here you know who don't who don't know how to be loved she's also viciously funny there is i mean i would i was uh, reading it, uh, the first one on the bus, and I just kept started laughing. And finally, somebody turned around, two ones up, two uh, rows up, and said, "Could you just not laugh so loud?" <laughs> You're the first person that I've ever heard say that. I mean, like most people are like, "This is such a dark book. Oh my god, it's so gritty and violent." So I'm glad you thought it was funny. Well, it is gritty and violent, but it's also very funny. Her observations are just she cuts she cuts underneath the pretense of anybody, right? Like about whether that's about the empty, the beautiful but empty Vancouver, whether that's pretensions of the people who are too good for themselves, you know, whether that's the, the corruption in, uh, in politicians or in, in society. I mean, she really has a, uh, a sarcastic, it's, it's satire in many ways, yet it's couched within this very real 
gritty look at, at Canadian society. Yeah, I mean, and and, I, and I'm really glad that you picked up on the humor because a lot of people don't. <laughs> um, but I find that that's, that's how people get through hardship is through humor. And so I, I'm from the Caribbean. I was born in Trinidad and, um, and the Trinidadians are outrageously funny people. Just, they will say anything at any time. They have no filters. But a lot of that kind of comes out of this sense, deep, you know, you'll never know what matters to them because they hide it with humor. And, and that's something that I, I personally do a lot. And I, I tap into for Nora as well. And so tell us a little bit, you were, you were mentioning the other day that in preparation, so part of um, It All Falls Down, the second book, it, it's set both in Vancouver and it's also set in Detroit. And so you went in preparation and research, you went to Detroit and you found yourself a private investigator to hang out with and you got involved with a cold case. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. Okay. So um, the part of this, uh, It All Falls Down is in, in Detroit, actually a large part of it. And um, so I, I knew that I needed a just very intense look at, at Detroit and, um, and their justice system. So I hired a private investigator. And when I arrived and met him, it turns out that there was some sort of misunderstanding. And he was an actual police investigator with the Violent Crimes Task Force in Detroit. So my first day there, he was like, look, uh, he picked me up from the bus station. I took the bus in from Toronto. And he was like, I really want to talk to you, but we just broke a cold case. Uh, do you want to come with me to headquarters? And I was like, yeah, of course I want to come with you to headquarters. Um, I thought he was just going to deposit me at reception and leave me for several hours. But he actually took me around, introduced me to everybody. And I sat with this task force and watched as he interviewed this, this witness who had, she was um, an 18-year-old prostitute turned madam who'd witnessed this murder and she was high when they picked her up and coming off the high they asked her um well tell us about the murder that you saw and she and she was like which one and she started telling them about this whole other murder that was a couple of years old and um and and yeah and so i got to sit there and and watch that interview take place in real time it was the most brilliant look inside look at at what it was to be a police officer in Detroit. It was at, at what the crime is there is like a little bit and just the struggles that the people of the city faced. And, uh, and for the duration of the trip, I was able to go on ride-alongs and really hang out and get to know the place from that perspective as well. So that was really interesting. It does amaze me reading over the years interviews with crime writers and just how much they get involved with, uh, in during the research with police officers, with you know, in Scotland, when the University of Glasgow needed to raise money for their forensic science uh, new building, they went to all the crime writers in Scotland and they had them raise the money. And then they would put, you know, Ian Rankin's name on the embalming fluid. And, you know, they, they had them, um, because they had a back and forth relationship because of the level of research needed to write crime fiction or to write forensic psychology. Forensic details. So is this an area that you will do more of? Is it of, of interest to you? Did, and also for the third book, which we're hopefully we'll maybe get a little teaser out of uh, you for in terms of at least the title, but did you do research for that one as well? The third book? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're all pretty researched. Um, the third book is a revenge story. So that one is a bit more straightforward, but it's got a lot of heart to it as well. 
Um, but yeah, but I understand what you're saying about research. You really do form connections with people. You know, people in policing, they, they want to be understood as well. And they, they want to shed light on what they, what they do. And it's, it's always kind of fascinating to create these connections and then throw some of that information away so that you can write your, your story in, in a way that feels natural to the story as well. So finding that balance as well. But yeah, but you do create lasting relationships and you do have experts that you rely on that, um, that you know, you, you can still call on. So that's, that's, that's a little perk. Yes, and when I was in university, after I did my English lit degree, I did a, a degree in criminology. And I never expected to do anything with it. But it was, to me, the, the uh, kernel of human behavior was in, in that study, because the study is a combination of criminal law, psychology, and sociology. And at the end of the day, so that is, you know, society is about why we do things, how we work in the collective, what, how the collective uh, takes care or, or doesn't of the individual, and how that intercedes with, the, uh, with criminal law, you know. And so it is a fascinating, at, at the heart of it, that is what society not that everybody engages with the criminal law, of course, but, but, um, but that nexus is such a core part of who we are as people and who we are as a society. And I was very much reminded of that when I was, when I was reading your books, because it does talk so much about not just the individual mystery at the heart of this, but at the core of how she engages with her individual community, but then with the wider community. And the intersection in Vancouver of 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 police, of organized crime, of gangs, you know, of the of disenfranchised. So it's, it's a terrific melding of, I guess, your research, but of all of that in that location. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that it's my political science background that's showing through with that. Um, but also, I mean, crime crime fiction is so compelling in general because it does look at the darkness of the human heart. And, and those, those are the stories, those are the things that we really want to know about. Why do people do the things that they do? And so I'm also going to now switch tracks a little bit. There are these two books, but you have been writing a uh, young adult fiction book. It's called Fight Like a Girl. Fight Like a Girl, yeah. And so tell us a little bit about that. I, I think it's due maybe in 2020. Yeah, okay. So that book, it was really strange the way that it came about. I was in Rome. I was meant to write my third Nora book, and my third Nora book was not coming to me. And but the story that did come to me was this um, the story about a young Muay Thai fighter, a teenaged Muay Thai fighter of Trinidadian heritage, who starts to suspect that her mother killed her father, and that the other very witchy women in her life were in on it. And not only that, they're planning on killing another man. So it incorporates some elements of um, Caribbean mythology. And, but it's, it's a really, I guess, unflinching look at the, the connection between domestic violence and violence through sport. Yeah, well, I'm, Muay Thai is a sport that I've trained on and off for about 10 years, one of my best friends in the world, uh, he owns a Muay Thai gym in Scarborough, Ontario, east end of Toronto. So I, I just, I spent a lot of time at this gym just looking at the fighters and the girl fighters are really interesting because you never really see that or consider that level of aggression in young women and women in general. And to see that play out, to spar, like I, I can't tell you just 
how, what it feels like to be pushed, kicked in the stomach by like, by this, by a, by a girl and like a flying into a mirror. Like there's the kind of things that you, that you come across. And I wanted to capture that energy and, um, and make it real. So that actually kind of comes out of my own heritage a bit as well. The Nora books do not come out of my heritage. They, it comes out of, I don't know, I don't know where it comes out of, but, but this one actually kind of, it really does, does look at the, the, the elements that, that make me who I am, you know, East End of Toronto, Muay Thai, being of Trinidadian heritage. And tell us a little bit about the uh, path you took, because it's an unusual path uh, and a very successful one in terms of getting published. So I think I said on an earlier panel that, um, that I was in screenwriting, I was, you know, I was a researcher and I, I, um, I was tired of people telling me no. I was tired of people saying, you have to pay your dues. Who am I paying these dues to? When will the dues end? I, like, I, I had no answers. I felt like, um, I, felt like I, I was talented and I just didn't, I wasn't getting the opportunities. And so I quit my, as soon as I had the, the idea for the Nora, the, uh, the lost ones, I quit my job and I moved to Vancouver and I was, I bummed around. I didn't have a job out here. I didn't have any money. I was close to broke, but I knew that I had a story in me and that it, it was a good story. And I, I guess I wanted to prove to myself that I, that I was a good writer. So within about eight months, I, have a, I had a draft of the book and someone told me, well, go to New York and pitch at Pitch Fest, which is um, a, a, an activity or an event organized by Thriller Fest, which is the big thriller writers um, conference that happens in New York every July. So I went and I pitched exactly, you know, the log line that I'd, I'd said before, woman discovers a child she'd given up, up for adoption, um, has gone missing, and now she's got to go into her own past. Yeah, and that's, and that's what happened. I pitched to nine agents. All nine of them requested the manuscript. At the right, right when you were meeting with them in New York that yes. time? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I sent the manuscripts uh, right over and I got picked up by my number one choice. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And, and so it was, it was kind of unbelievable to me because I, don't, I didn't understand how these things worked. I still don't really understand how these things work. But I don't I, think anybody really understands yeah. necessarily how they work. Maybe, um, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's true. But I just I took a chance. I took a chance on on myself. Which is, a, you know, when we've been talking for the last couple of days, particularly for emerging writers, it's the hardest thing to do. But it is the most important lesson to be able to believe in oneself and say, "I will define myself as a writer, and I will take this chance." Because it is an industry that that says no for a living. It is an industry that says no 99% of the time and it says yes 1% of the time. Uh, and if that's any lesson to teach, I know that you are very keen to help other writers and help other emerging writers. And if that's one thing that's important to keep repeating and repeating is that do not let others define whether you have talent or not or whether you should be published or not, uh, and, but just to keep on trying. Absolutely. Yeah. Be, you know, believe in yourself, believe in your talent, do the work. And when you're ready to show your work, make sure that your work is ready to be shown and then go in with a plan. So when I, when I went to pitch in New York, I had a very specific plan that I worked and, you know, it was that log line. That's your initial, that was my initial 
you know, hey, I'm, I'm my, you know, my name is Sheena Kamal and I've got this 90,000 word manuscript. It's, it's crime fiction and it's about this. And then I had about another paragraph uh, memorized and that was the, an expansion of what the story was. And then I had another set on, you know, who I am and why I was qualified to tell the story. And I worked it like I would work any, you know, as an actor, any script. And I knew it inside out. And I was able to make it very conversational and approach people like their people. And, th- and I think that's the key as well, is that a lot of writers sort of creep up to industry people and like, oh, you know, will you please? I don't know. I'm so sorry to bother you. And just stuff like that. No, you... They want you. People want to know what your stories are because they want to know if they can sell you. So you have to give them what they're looking for. Make them excited about you. And the first step is to be excited about yourself. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.